Hello, and welcome to the Canine Conversations podcast, where we're positively obsessed with behavior. Join us every other week as we discuss case studies, explore training concepts, and interview experts in the field of behavior. Today's episode includes myself, Ursa Acri, co-owner of Canis Major Dog Training in Denver, Colorado, and I'm joined by my co-host, who I'll let introduce herself. Hi, guys. My name is Kayla Fratt. I'm the owner of Journey Dog Training, which is based in Missoula, Montana, as well as remotely around the world. So today we're tackling a really tough topic, um, behavioral euthanasia. This is a really sensitive and controversial concept, but it's one that we feel it's really important to have a dialogue about since nearly every trainer or behavior consultant is going to be faced with this issue or this question at some point. So in this episode, we're going to discuss what behavioral euthanasia is, when it may be justified, and considerations for talking to clients about it or really anybody about it. Um, We're not going to spend a lot of time on why this is a tough topic or whether behavioral euthanasia is acceptable sort of in a vacuum. We understand and accept that many people disagree with the practice, and we're not here to belittle anyone for that view. But what we hope to do instead is have a frank discussion about the realities of behavioral euthanasia as an ethical choice within the behavior consulting field. So we are going to dig right in. Kayla? Yeah. Yeah. So as always, um, as you guys know, if you've listened to the podcast for a while, we like starting out by defining our terms. So what is behavioral euthanasia? The term euthanasia, Ursa looked it up for us, um, (laughs) comes from the Greek word euthanatos, meaning easy death. Um, And Wikipedia defines it as the practice of intentionally ending a life to relieve pain and suffering. So behavioral euthanasia means euthanasia as a result of an unresolvable behavior issue. And I really appreciate that definition of intentionally ending a life to relieve pain and suffering. And I want to just note that because I think it's important to sort of hold that in your mind when you are talking about this topic, because, you know, it is different than depopulating, for example, like the practice of euthanizing animals in a shelter for space, for example. Um, You know, I think if we're keeping the, the point of this in mind, it is, relieving pain and suffering. Um, So I just kind of wanted to point that out. I think it's a a really poignant way to put it. So, um, but I want to start off with a little perspective from both of us. We both have backgrounds in shelter behavior. So I was the behavior manager for the Kentucky Humane Society for several years. And then after that, served as the behavior manager at the Dumb Friends League for a few years. And both shelters are open admissions, which means that they accept any animals that come through the door and that they do perform euthanasia for a variety of possible reasons. So at KHS, I was responsible for helping make recommendations and decisions regarding behavioral euthanasia. Um, But at DFL, in addition to being responsible for those decisions, I was also required to perform the procedure of euthanasia on a rotating basis. And that was sort of a way of sharing the burden among staff members. So there wasn't a person that was responsible for doing euthanasia. So I have a really intimate relationship with it, um, both the concept and the practice. Um, Kayla, what's your history with it? Yeah, so I think my my first experience with behavioral euthanasia was also in kind of the shelter rescue context, um, both kind of grappling with it before I came to DFL when I was um, helping foster and work with a rescue that worked with really, really challenging dogs and kind of having moments where I questioned whether or not um, a dog was actually workable and what we were doing with it. Um, 
And then once I got to DFL, you know, like you, I was involved in euthanasia decision-making processes. I was just a behavior tech, um, so I wasn't necessarily the final say for a lot of dogs but and cats, but there were times where I did make that decision on my own um, and just was able to do that um, at my, my pay grade, so to speak. Um, I didn't stay in that job long enough to start pre- performing euthanasias. That usually starts around two years into the job, and I, I left around, around that time. So aside from helping with decision-making um, and you know a lot of discussions while at Dumb, Dumb Friends League about euthanasia, one of the other lasting legacies I have, or at least had, I don't know whether or not they're still using it, was that I helped create a risk assessment sheet for dogs to help make euthanasia decisions in a more uniform way. Um, those of you guys who know me know that that's, you know, I, I very much so I'm kind of a data spreadsheet person. Um, and I didn't really want this to be a way to try to reduce the, reduce these decisions down to numbers or an algorithm. Like it wasn't intended to be that cold. It was more kind of meant to help um, the behavior team do a gut check at times. You know, there were cases that we were we were having a really, really hard time with. And when we were able to kind of look at this risk assessment sheet and see kind of how high risk a dog was scoring on it, um, it was really helpful, especially in those cases where a dog quote unquote looked great 90 to 95% of the time. Um, so yeah, that was, that was something that I was really proud of and was really, really helpful. Um, it really helped me at least sleep better at night. Um, especially with those really tough cases. Um, so since leaving Dumb Friends League, um, I've had the unfortunate um, honor, I suppose, of helping clients through the decision-making process around behavioral euthanasia, as well as the grief afterwards um, and some of the self-doubt. Um, so, and one of the things I found really interesting about my current business model with Journey Dog Training is um that because I offer kind of these remote consults, I've actually had quite a few clients call or schedule appointments where they're basically having me help them do a gut check. And the only time I might talk to them is during a one hour call where they're considering euthanasia, um, which has been um, an interesting niche that I didn't intend to carve out for myself in any way. Um, but has given me a lot of experience despite um, I think the number of years I've been in this field. Um, and then kind of on top of that, you guys know I'm a writer. Um, so I think about behavioral euthanasia a lot and I've written several articles on the topic, um, both for canine of mine, um, and kind of like forward facing to the pet, um, community, as well as for the International Association of Animal Behavior Consultants Journal, which was about so-called gray zone dogs and kind of those, those decisions that really stick with you because you're not quite sure whether you went the right way with them. So those dogs that weren't an easy decision either way, not that any decision is easy, but some of them are much more clear cut than others. Um, And then recently because of that interview, I was part of a panel on behavioral euthanasia for the Colorado Dog Traders Network. Um, I wouldn't really call myself an expert here, but I think because I write and think about it so much, uh, sometimes I'm kind of perceived as one and I've gotten roped into um, quite a lot of discussions on it. Yeah, no, that's fair. I mean, it's it's not it's something that not every trainer or behavior consultant wants to tackle. So, a willingness to do so, I think, is is definitely sets sets you apart for sure. So, one thing that I usually hear when my experience with euthanasia comes up is, um, you know, people will say something like, "Oh, I don't know how you do it or how you did it." 
um, or how you can handle that. And I think it's difficult for people sometimes to understand how someone who claims to care about animals could advocate for and even carry out such a procedure. Um, and so, you know, I know you mentioned things that you kind of did to help yourself sleep better at night. And I just thought we could talk briefly, you know, kind of about just our personal um, sort of stances. Um, and, you know, for me, at least, I think that a lot of it comes down to whether or not you believe that there is a worse fate for an animal than death, um, which I definitely do. I think that, it's, you know, it's my job to minimize suffering in any way that I can. So for people that I help, for the animals that I help, and when I say suffering, I don't necessarily mean extreme suffering, any kind of suffering, whether it's frustration or discomfort or whatever, um, you know, I see it as my responsibility to help minimize that wherever I can. And fortunately, the vast majority of my job, that goal is accomplished through behavior modification and training. But then I think, especially when you're in the shelter or especially when you deal with um, severe behavior issues like depression, there comes a point where, um, you know, the, the suffering is extreme. And I think there's been a big shift in the last, I don't know, probably 10 years, 10, 10 to 15 years, where um, it's become more widely understood that psychological and emotional suffering is tantamount to medical physique physical suffering, you know, it's, it's, it can be just as bad. Whereas before, I think there was sort of this idea that like, well, medical suffering, we understand when you have to choose euthanasia, but, um, you know, if the animal is just anxious or just aggressive or just, you know, behavior problem, it's not, it, it doesn't justify it. And I think that we now know that, that that kind of suffering can be just as bad. And so for me, you know, from the perspective of someone, when I was working in the shelter, um, I think that I felt a, a big responsibility to make sure that at the very least I could have input about when I felt an animal was suffering to the point where it was not humane for them to continue living. And I think that in some ways it's important for our field to have those kinds of advocates to say like, this is not an acceptable level of suffering and it can't be allowed to continue. Um, so, you know, for me, that's, I don't want to say justifies it because I don't, I don't believe it's something that needs justification, but it, it helps me grapple with the, um, with the depth of it and the, you know, sort of the very complex nature and, and the finality of it. Um, so, you know, that's something that was always really important for me was that it is this working to end suffering. And I truly believe in a lot of cases it does. Um, so, that's kind of my personal reason for, for being involved with it. And I don't know, you know, what you'd like to add to that kind of from your perspective. Yeah. I mean, I think just to kind of add on to the suffering discussion, part of it as well is the suffering of the human caretakers or other animals in the home, um, yeah. you know, and those are always part of, um, of that calculus for me as well, um, because there may be cases where the dog you could argue isn't, suffering personally that much i mean i would argue in most cases of pretty bad aggression that dog is not happy um but there are cases where you could argue that like yeah he's actually mostly got a really good life but if the human is practically held captive to a dog and can't have visitors and 
will never will not be able to have children or can never have another pet or you know like when you start looking at some of the restrictions that some of these dogs would need in order to be able to continue living a decent quality of life that's not always a fair ask for the human um and especially if that dog also has stranger directed aggression then you have to think okay any potential adopter who maybe doesn't want kids or maybe does live at the end of a dead end road and doesn't have any friends or family who ever visit ever they're also a stranger for that dog it kind of brings us to you know um one of the things that we were going to, to mention about kind of the two contexts the two major contexts in which this occurs if you want to uh, talk about that a little bit yeah yeah i mean i think Basically, it's a homed dog, a dog in a home that has a family who's considering this versus a dog that doesn't have a home, a dog that's in a shelter or rescue. And there are some really, really big differences there. Um, But I actually kind of wanted to circle back a little bit more to talking about um, kind of how how I think through it and how, you know, I deal with it, how I sleep at night, so to speak. Um, And, you know, so it's it's the suffering of both the dog and the others involved in the dog's life. one of the things that I would remind myself a lot at the shelter is that I am not the one who failed this dog necessarily. Um, you know, it wasn't the three days of training or the three weeks of training or the three months of training that this dog got in the shelter. That was the problem. Um, this dog came in with either, you know, a bad, bad hand, hand of cards dealt genetically or really bad life experience or both. Um, and that often helped. Um, and then to be perfectly honest there, um, because especially in a sheltering context, you have this responsibility to um, the community, to keeping them safe and to helping, um, you know, keep people able to have pet dogs um, in apartments. You know, like that's always something that I think about a lot as someone who rents. Um, and um you know, I saw there were a couple cases that I made a decision not to euthanize or to advocate against euthanasia, where then that dog went on to bite someone. Um, there was one case where I argued against euthanasia for a dog that um, later pulled a seven-year-old girl off of a swing set by her hair. Um, and I'm going to tell you that dog bothers me more to this day than most of the other dogs that I advocated for euthanasia for. Um and it's you have to make that risk assessment and depending on the issues the dog is presenting and whether the dog is in a home or not you know you're going to fall in different areas along that continuum because you obviously can't or i would i would argue shouldn't um euthanize every dog because of the risk of what it could potentially do in the worst possible circumstance nor can you decide not to euthanize every single dog because of the hope that it will be given the perfect life where it never is exposed to anything that stresses it out ever again. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, you're going to get it wrong. You know, I think at the end of the day, you're going to get it wrong. Um, sometimes. And that is a, a really huge burden to carry, but um, you know, that's something that we take on just in our work as behavior consultants. I mean, I've, I've gotten it wrong just with treatment plans um, and and there's been fallout from that. And so, you know, it's one of those things where we, we really do try to do the very, very best, make the very, very best decision we can with the information that we have, um, yeah. for sure. I think one of the things that's tough with euthanasia is you don't necessarily know. Um, right. You know, and, and, and the same with deciding not to euthanize. Like, there probably are dogs and cats that I chose not to euthanize that 
also went on to bite someone or hurt someone or live a really miserable life or turn up at another shelter elsewhere. But I don't know that. That dog that really bothers me is one of the few um, where that dog actually did come back to the same shelter. And I don't actually remember exactly how I was alerted to to the whole situation. Um, But um, yeah, so I think one of the things that's hard in both directions is just not knowing. And there's this at least when you decide not to euthanize um, in the shelter context, you can hope that the reason you haven't heard is because it's working out. Right. Um, <laughs> no news is good news. Yeah. But you don't know yeah. that. So. Right. So, oh, and I think, oh, I was just going to add one more thing is that I think um, I really feel like my experience with behavioral euthanasia has made me a better, more, compassionate, more systematic uh, behavior consultant because I understand how I see, I have seen many, many times how dogs get to that place um, and what failures line up to, you know, to to have that occur. And so um, while I do think sometimes it can be the most ethical choice, of course, there's, I never want anyone to have to make that choice. And so I think it has definitely, um, helped round me out as a behavior consultant. And, you know, I'm always saying that we're learning at the expense of the dogs that we're working with, right? So our, our mistakes are compounded. And, and I just mean regular mistakes that we make in training. Like when we have a learning experience, it's at the expense of the, the dog that's, that we're learning from. And, uh, and so I don't mean to, um, I don't mean this in a glib way, like, oh yeah, you know, all this behavior Asia really helped me become a better trainer. Um, I mean it in a very genuine, very real way. Um, having that experience is, you know, it's always in the back of my mind and it's always pushing me to do the best that I can do for each of my clients. So, um, you know, it's one of those things you sort of, you have to be able to, um, take something from it that you can use to help other other dogs and other people so that they don't end up in that situation. Yeah, definitely. So let's circle back to kind of the the shelter versus homed dog discussion. Did you have anything that you wanted to bring up right away on that? Um, No, I think that, um, you know, one of the first things that we want to talk about is when behavioral euthanasia might be justified. And I think the factors that we use to consider when it might be justified are really different in the shelter versus in the home. Yeah. So, um, you know, like we talked about, we talked about suffering. I think quality of life is, a, is another way to put it. Is probably the more, um, you know, sort of pragmatic way to put it is quality of life. Because we can't necessarily say that a dog is suffering, but their quality of life um, might be in question or the quality of life of the people that, are, that they're living with. So, um you know, when it's extremely poor due to a behavior issue or where keeping a dog alive would pose an unreasonable risk. And because these are really subjective terms. <laughs> so um, my poor quality of life might not be the same as your poor quality of life. My unreasonable risk might not be the same as your unreasonable risk. So I think that's a lot of where we run into, um, you know, people, just people disagreeing about it because, what I think is acceptable might not be what you think is acceptable. 
So it, I think it really helps to have an idea of how to evaluate what the quality of life is, what the risk is. And so I tend to look at this list of factors and assess each one individually. And it sounds like it's probably really similar to the system that you devised, which incidentally is really similar to a system um, at a, a place where I worked doing some behavioral research where um, there was, it wasn't, the decision wasn't made based on the rating system, but like you mentioned, it was kind of a way for staff to assess, do a gut check or say like, wow, this actually is worse than we think when we look at the dog. Um, so, you know, I'm definitely an advocate for making those things a little more systematic, just as a way for you to evaluate the information that you have about the situation, you know, because it, it shouldn't just be an emotional decision. It should be, you know, a, a one again that uses the information that you have. So some factors to consider, uh, age and the health of the dog. Um, you know, I think that uh, it's it's really hard for people to look at like a really young dog and say, you know, this dog has just started its life, but it has these severe behavior issues, but we want to give it a chance. Um, and I get that. Like, I get that. Um, whereas with an older dog who's maybe in poor health, um, it might feel better to say, you know, we're not going to let this dog continue to be in this state since we know that they're not likely to be around much longer anyway. Um, yeah, and they're not likely to get better, you know, if that dog already has yeah. pancreatic cancer. Yeah, yeah, um, or a 13-year history of an aggressive behavior or you name it. And I wouldn't say age is a huge factor in my decision, or in my, mm -mm. not necessarily decision, but like assessment. But it is something to consider, you know. Um, yeah. I don't know if you have a kind of a different. No, I would say similar as far as kind of age and health. Um, and I will say as well, I don't quite know how to phrase this, but and, and I, I, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on it. But when I see really, really severe intake forms coming from really, really young dogs as well, you know, like under a year old, um, that's a huge red flag for me. It's not going to be a euthanasia decision at that point at all. Um, but that sets off much more alarm bells for me than a similar intake form from a four-year-old dog might um, because seeing really, really severe aggression or really, really strong anxiety behaviors from a young dog just, you know, it points more towards genetic or hormonal issues that are going to be harder to deal with um, and less likely to undo versus kind of quote unquote, a simple learned behavior. Um, so, and I think that ties into age as well. If this dog has been doing this for 12 years and the dog is 11 years old, that's also a huge deal. Um, but, and I, this is kind of front of mind, uh, Michael Shikashio's episode uh, or a podcast by the end of the dog just had an episode that I listened to today about, puppies and it was one of the things they were talking about is these puppies that are showing really really serious aggression and the thing the nice thing with puppies um is you should see improvement quickly um so those cases can go either way and a lot of times they do resolve really really nicely in ways that you just absolutely would not have expected based on the intake form um but you can expect faster progress and it makes it a little bit easier to start seeing those trend lines with puppies versus an older dog mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one of my most 
startling cases in recent memory was a um, purebred golden retriever puppy who came home, I mean, normal age, eight weeks, I think. By 10 mm-hmm. weeks, was aggressively biting the family members. And by, oh gosh, probably four months, had bitten one of the children, older children, like, you know, 11, 12, so not a toddler, um, in the home uh, on the head. Ooh. Like over a resource. So bypass. Yeah, I was going to say, was it resource guarding? Because I feel like it's yep. with the young goldens, it's always resource guarding. Bypass the limb that was closest to the resource to bite her on the head, um, which is extremely severe. And that, uh, well, it was a really, uh, it was a sort of a really messed up situation where the breeder did not um, do what they should have done, but the dog ultimately, the puppy ultimately ended up being euthanized. Um, and, and, you know, oh, thank you. It was, you know, it's always harder on the family because I at least am able to step back and go, yeah, this is not normal. This is not okay. Like this dog is broken. Um, whereas the family does not have the uh, luxury of that sort of, you know, more clinical perspectives. Um, yeah. Well, and and, um, I, with, uh, I can't awful. even imagine. I mean, I can't, I have a hard time imagining with my own dog in any way. And I really have a hard time imagining what that would be like to pay a deposit on a puppy, wait for a litter, bring home a teddy bear and end up having to make that decision. Like that's, it's awful. And a puppy who could be really sweet sometimes, but they never knew when he was going to flip the switch, um, you know, so to speak. And, and when the, the aggression was going to be triggered, it really was extremely idiosyncratic. So, you know, um, but when they first reached out to me and I heard the history of the behavior in just the two weeks that he had been in the home, it was like just a huge red flag. Huge red flag. Yeah. Um, and it got worse. Yes. And, and the age was a huge red flag because, you know, it, again, it, 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 puppies that young aren't supposed to behave like that. It's, yeah. Um, I mean, the analogy I'll give my clients at times is like, it's not that unusual for teenagers to get in trouble for fighting or smoking or cutting school right. or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's a lot scarier when you see a kindergartner you know, shanking someone. I see. I see. You know, it's not a good thing to ha- to see your teenager picking fights, but it's not abnormal developmentally. Developmentally, know? exactly. But developmentally, for a kindergartner to be intentionally severely hurting other kids is really abnormal. It's a, it's scary. Yeah, yeah, it's the same. So, so age. You know, and like I said, I, you know, I know I originally was like people want to give them a chance when they're young, but sometimes age the age factor can actually go the other way where it's like, Ooh, this is way too young for this to be a normal behavior or learned behavior. So, um, the next big consideration is what's the history of the, of the target behavior, the problematic behavior. Um, you know, I'll talk to clients a lot. I, I see a lot of people who want their dog to be better around other dogs, um, socially. And I always ask about the fight history versus fight history. And I'm sure you do too, because we can learn a lot about, um, you know, a dog's likely behavior. If we have a dog that's gotten into a lot of altercations, but only delivered a few bites, that's actually better than a dog that has only had a few altercations, but every one of them resulted in a bite. Because we can sort of extrapolate, okay, 
dog A, who's had a lot of bites, but very few bites, isn't really meaning business. Like, he just doesn't have the skills to resolve whatever this issue is, and we can teach those skills. Dog B, few fights, many bites, is is looking looking to hurt somebody to, make, to get his point across. Um, and so that's just one example of looking at the history of the behavior. So what uh, is, is it predictable? And if so, what is the predictable outcome? What is likely to happen if the, the behavior is triggered? Um, and, you know, we kind of get back into this crystal ball. <laughs> we can never be sure, but we can make some really good educated guesses about what's going to happen. Um, do you have other examples that you that come to mind for that one? Or no, I mean no. I think I think that it's it's something that people are relatively com- kind of comfortable with as far as the concept of like yeah the the difference in history and being able to kind of see those patterns um, whether or not it's escalating. Um, yeah, and I love I love talking about that bite to fight ratio. Um, Although one of the things, and I think this blends into our next point, is one of, it is a red flag for me. Even if a dog is not causing damage when he's getting into these fights, say, um, if he's getting into these fights really frequently, that points to some amount of management failure or something that's really challenging in the environment. That's not a good, a good thing. So, like, yes, it's great that so far this dog has not been putting holes in anyone, but the fact that he's getting into a fight a week shows right. us that something is going really wrong. Um, and the management either team. with client compliance or with just, you know, the environment, the, the whole setup that the dog is in. Um, so that, that information is still useful. Yeah. One of the other things that I consider is history of training. And I don't necessarily mean how much training the dog has, although that can play a part, how fluent, you know, certain behaviors are. But a lot of the time, the type of training that has been done can play a big role in the prognosis because dogs who have been trained with heavily aversive methods um, tend, in my experience, and I think that we probably have some research we can show on this, um, to resort to aggression more quickly because their earlier warning signs have been suppressed. and, and then you often get the learned helplessness piece where the dog will refuse to respond until it's just so severe that they can't not respond. And then the reaction is just completely over the top. Um, so, and, and then there are a lot of other little more nuanced things that I see as fallout from heavily aversive methods, like um, a dog's not trusting the training process or not being able to engage with a training or a treatment plan um, those can all be big barriers to um, a good prognosis. And so if there is a really long history of heavily aversive training, I think that that, you know, is a factor to consider and can hinder progress for sure. Yeah, definitely. And I think that can also kind of contribute to com- client burnout um, because they've felt like they're doing so much for so long and they've been led astray by, you know, either a professional trainer or the internet. And either way, it's not necessarily the client's fault. Um, but, um, yeah, if they've been trying to work through something for six months and they felt like 
they've been doing all the right things. And then, you know, it's hard. It's always a tough discussion for behavior consultants like us to come in and try to say, Ooh, yikes, we've actually been going in the wrong direction with this. Um, while not harming that relationship with our clients, I actually just had this conversation with someone over email yesterday, um, where it was, I mean, it was some of the worst training I've ever heard described to me in this email. Um, this dog was on a leash attached to a pulley on the ceiling so oh that they could hang it from the ceiling. I've never heard of something like that before. Um, oh, I have. <laughs> I think yeah. that's, uh, is that Kohler maybe? It's one of the older oh, German. Yeah. Oh, it's horrendous. Yeah. But luckily this person found my look at that game's video on YouTube and was reaching out being like, oh my God, there's another way to do this. And I've she lives in LA and has a ton of amazing trainers near her. So we're getting oh, her off on the right foot. And she came to me at the point where she was looking to change things. But um if she hadn't been, that would have been, a, you know, and I, I even started out my email being like, I hope I'm not going to alienate with you, you with how blunt I'm about to be here. But this is frankly awful, horrifying. This is some of the worst stuff I've ever heard. Um, you know, uh, I mean, it was slightly better, better written than that. There's a trainer who was trying to make a name for himself in, in Louisville around the time that I, um, started training as well, who used that method and would advocate for, um, Hanging until the dog passed out. Yeah. Horrendous. And you know, when I, when we talk about abusive training methods, like that's, you know, I don't think that, you know, tools used for corrections are generally, can generally be described as abusive. I think that's a little melodramatic, but that is hanging a dog until it passes out is abuse. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I would agree. Yeah. I mean, no qualms about saying Nope. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, on the flip side, really poorly implemented positive reinforcement, um, mm-hmm. can also be really hard, um, and can also really undo things. I moderate the pandemic. I'm one of the moderators on the pandemic puppy support Facebook group, um, pandemic puppy raising support Facebook group. It's quite the name. Um, and, um, I was, I was following a thread the other day just to kind of make sure everything was going okay. And this, this woman was talking about how she didn't want to use leash pressure to keep her puppy from eating bird poop because she wanted to be force free with her puppy. Um, and you know, that's not necessarily an issue where this could go really awry, but kind of that, I would argue misunderstanding of force free training could, you know, if she was dealing with a more serious behavior problem could end up being really dangerous. Um, and you know, she, I think she ended up getting set off on kind of the right foot of being like, oh, no, 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 it doesn't have to be a bad thing that you're using leash pressure to keep your puppy from doing something bad. That's called management. That's part of force-free training. Um, but, you know, I think, yeah, yeah, it, it, it goes both ways. Um, I, I would probably rather have a puppy who eats bird poop because someone's too cautious about leash pressure than to hang my dog. Um, <laughs> I mean, I definitely would. But... Um, <laughs> I think the point being with certain really serious problems, a poorly done or poorly implemented behavior plan on either end of the spectrum can be really detrimental. Bad training is bad training. Absolutely. 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 Yeah. One of my, um, I I actually think I talked about this in our last podcast because I was just listening to edit it recently, but it was a a dog with a extensive bite history and they'd been through several trainers and, one of the trainers was also what I would consider abusive, sort of provoked the dog until it just collapsed, basically. 
um, you know, elbow length leather bike gloves and just cornering the dog and antagonizing it until it just gave up. Um, but one of the other trainers that they had tried to corner it and feed it treats and got bitten. And I'm like, this is not, yeah, that's, and, and I think that's why they ended up going to this other trainer because they were like, well, the treat thing doesn't work. So we're going to try this other approach. And the problem was both were bad. (laughs) Both were poorly executed just in different ways. So Agree, yeah. 100%. Yeah, I, I mean, and like poorly done counter conditioning can be really bad, you know, and which sounds like kind of what this person was trying to do. Um, I get, I don't even know. <laughs> yeah, taking a know. really operant approach with with some of these behavior problems can really backfire. I had a client a while ago who had been through three or four different trainers before me, and all of them had just been trying to teach the dog to sit when he saw another dog and they'd been, you know, everything from prong and choke collars to, you know, totally positive reinforcement based, but none of them were helping this dog, you know, feel better about other dogs. Um, and uh, I mean, this dog, it took like three sessions of just playing the look at that game for this dog to show huge improvements. But, you know, again, it didn't, and it sounds like we're arguing for more, <laughs> like, I, I, I think the point that we're trying to make is just that, like, again, bad training is bad training. So, yeah, well, and it can it can affect the dog's ability to learn. And so when yeah. you're talking about a severe behavior issue where the dog's life hangs in the balance, and if the dog has a history of um, being stressed or shut down or ineffective training or extreme frustration or you name it, um, that is yeah. all going to hinder the progress that they make. And so that's a factor. Yeah, absolutely. At the end of the day, you know, it's never the dog's fault. That's not the dog's fault, but it is what it is. That's the reality of the situation is can the dog learn what we need them to learn in order to resolve this issue? And can they learn it in a timely enough fashion that it's, you know, reasonable for it to be safe and so forth. So um, other risk factors, uh, we talked about management. I think that is worth a revisit. So a colleague of mine has a client right now whose dog has now five or six times been able to escape their house or yard to run out and bite a stranger. Yeah. So it's always an issue of like, oh, the the kids left the gate open or the door wasn't pushed shut all the way or that kind of stuff. And it's all management fails, which is frustrating because, you know, um, we're the ones with the big brains, right? And we should be able to like lock the door. <laughs> and, and sometimes it, happen, it happens and it's no one's fault. And so no, of course. Placing, placing blame but really. Five or six times is like, okay, we're not, yeah. we're not learning from our mistakes here. Exactly. And so I think that when you can look at a history of management failures on the part of the guardian, you can say, okay, <laughs> this is not, this is a pattern of behavior it's not changing. They, like obviously, the dog biting, getting out and biting someone, is not a severe enough consequence for them to double check their doors. Um, yeah. So what is going yeah. to be? Or there's you know, so much going on in their lives that they just, you know, to sound yeah. overly millennial, um, they just literally can't. They literally <laughs> cannot. You know, <laughs> can't even. Um, yeah, can't even. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, so we've I all been there with something, but when it's something that's less high risk, that's a big deal. Yeah, so, and sometimes it has nothing to do with the owner's 
either compliance or sort of, you know, just reliability in general. It might be like, oh, well, they live in an open floor plan home and they have to keep mm-hmm. these two dogs separate, you know? Yeah, and they what have they an HOA that doesn't allow fences. Um, I, I, I have a risk apartment and they have to take a, an mm-hmm. elevator down to take their dog out and they're going to have other people get in the elevator with them. Like some management factors are out of our control. Yeah, yeah, I I have a like a risk assessment form on my website for aggressive dogs. That's just kind of like available for people. It's under an article on whether or not your dog is a red zone dog because I was trying to hit Google on that term um, that I think most of us don't like. Um, but I wanted to get some good information in there, and that's one of the big questions I ask: is you know, do are there things outside of your control in your environment that are going to make this harder? You know, the HOA the tight hallways in an apartment complex, the, you know, whatever it is, um, it's not always going to be your fault. And yeah, like if you've got a bunch of kids, teenagers coming in and out, like getting everyone to close gates all the time is going to be hard. It sounds like a little thing, but when you've got a bunch of 14 year olds and your 14 year olds, friends and whatnot, like a, that's a risk in and of itself and B, like, right. right. To some degree, kids are going to be kids. Humans are humans, yeah, and, and so those little mistakes are going to happen. And so we mitigate them wherever we can. So maybe you get a spring on your gate so it closes behind you and latches or whatever. But, you know, those things are always – they always have the potential to fail. And so I think you have to look at what management strategies are in place. Are they working? And if not, what can we do to get them working? And if there's no way to make them work, is this going to be a safe situation? Like what happens when management fails? What's the damage? Mm -hmm. I think we talk about this a lot in outdoor recreation um, as kind of like a little, there's like a little risk quadrant that I've seen drawn for myself of kind of the, the likelihood of something going wrong and the consequence if it does go wrong. Um, So, you know, for example, um, I used to rock climb a lot. I have not been rock climbing recently much, but um used to rock climb a lot. And there were things that I could rock climb where, you know what, there was probably a 90% chance that I was not going to fall or maybe even a 99% chance um, because I was climbing at a much higher level than that particular climb. But falling off of an 80 foot cliff to the rocks below is not an acceptable risk to me. I'm not Alex Honnold. Um, <laughs> no matter. Yeah, I mean, Alex Honnold is. Just him. <laughs> Yep. Um, you know, versus, yeah, something that is really, really likely to happen, um, Mm. but not that bad. Um, and you could argue, you know, either way, if you've got high likelihood of something not that bad happening or a low likelihood of something really, really bad happening, those might be tenable situations. But if you've got a high to medium likelihood of something that's bad to, to really, really bad happening, Mm -hmm. that's where you start having to say, we've, got to do something to change the situation. Interestingly enough, I was just trying to teach this concept to my five-year-old over the weekend (laughs) because he wanted to like walk on, we were camping and he wanted to walk over some dead trees that were piled up. And I was like, okay. And he's like, I'm not going to fall. And I'm like, but what's going to happen if you do, you're going to get stabbed in the eye with a tree. (laughs) So I was trying to, I was trying to talk to him about, there might not be a high likelihood that something is going to go wrong, but if the risk is really high, like if something really bad happens. But I mean, it, it's important to think about, you know, 
and weigh these things. It's super important, even just in our day-to-day lives. But um, especially when we're talking about what is the potential fallout from keeping a dog alive with, with a severe behavior issue. So, yeah, um, I think that's a great point to make. It, again, you know, ties into the next factor, um, environment and triggers. So, you know, environment and management kind of go hand in hand. They're two sides of the same coin. So um, is, is the environment one that, that is conducive to the behavior problem continuing or being triggered? Um, or is it one that is conducive to uh, the dog being um, able to stay under threshold? Um, and also, you know, it bears mentioning, are the triggers predictable? Because if they're predictable, so much, like with this golden puppy that I talked about earlier, really unpredictable triggers, um, which always makes me think there's something neurological going on, especially in that age. But um, they couldn't, like some resources, he would be okay. Some he wouldn't. Some there would be a mild reaction. Some there would be the really ridiculous, I'm going to bite your face off reaction. And so um, it's extremely hard to treat uh, behaviors whose triggers aren't identifiable and predictable. Because then you're just guessing about when the dog is going to be triggered. And guessing is not good in a treatment plan and a behavior modification plan. You don't you want to guess as little as possible. Because um, we already have to guess about what's going on inside the dog's head. So we want to try to eliminate guessing wherever we can. So um, if the triggers are predictable, it's a lot more, the prognosis is much better. If they're unpredictable or inconsistent, you know, then we're talking about getting into, well, we're going to have to rely extremely heavily on management. And that, I think, is a really important point to make, is that they are going to have to be doing this stuff for a long time in many cases. Um, I had a client recently who got really upset with me because um, she was kind of at the end of her rope. It, I don't, it wasn't about me, but I was the third or fourth person to tell her, you're in this for the long haul. It was a pretty relatively severe intra-household aggression case. And um, I was, you know, sort of going back over, here's what you're, here's what you can expect. And she, I don't think wanted to hear like, you're going to be doing this for months or years. It was, it was a, a blow for her, but especially when we're talking about really severe behavior, you can't rush a treatment plan. And so they need to buckle up and, and realize that they're going to be doing it for a really long time, most likely. So are they willing? Are they able? Um, another factor is what's the chance of finding a suitable rehoming situation? And this is where we get into the, you know, um, <laughs> lesbian couple that lives at the end of a cul-de-sac that never has neighbors visiting and no dogs ever walk and no men or children ever show up and like finding that, you know, idyllic ideal home for this dog with this extremely severe behavior issue. What are the, what are the odds that that's going to happen? Um, what are the chances that a perfect home is going to come along where this dog never gets triggered to do this behavior issue? Um, sometimes you can. Sometimes you can find a solution. Yeah, absolutely. No, they they are out there. But And I think I've made this point on the podcast before, but, you know, let's take my dad, for example. He lives alone on a 40-acre farm in northern Wisconsin. He's had dogs. He's not super active, but he does live on a 40-acre farm and is outside all the time. So, you know, really, really great natural behavioral enrichment. Um, and up until 
pretty recently. He didn't have guests often. He's actually started hosting an Airbnb, but um, so <laughs> now he is no longer the, the the hermit sort of figure that he once was. But um, you know, we'll pretend that he doesn't host the Airbnb. And even so, um, he hosts his college buddies up for hunting camp every fall. Um, you know, it's even people who are really solitary do have people who visit and he goes down to visits his mom in the nursing home five hours south and has to stay overnight either in a hotel or with his sister you know every couple of months you know like even these people where we think like oh there's someone out there um you know my dad is one of the most introverted people i i know um and lives on 40 acres and still would not actually be all that adequately equipped um for a dog with really serious behavior issues and he doesn't want to take one on and he lives in Northern Wisconsin. There's no one near him who could really help well in person. Um, there's, there's no good trainers. Um, I've, I've looked. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, like we've got a dog here with working dogs for conservation, who I think I've mentioned in the past who, um, I mean, there are so many things that went right for this dog to end up in the situation that he's in because he would absolutely have been a very, reasonable behavioral euthanasia choice in like 99 out of the other hundred universes that exist out there. Um, but he was lucky enough to get himself landed with a rescue that didn't euthanize him right away. Um, and lucky enough to have the ball drive and the overall smarts and work ethic to make it as a working dog and to come up to working dogs for conservation um, because he wouldn't have worked as a search and rescue dog or, a, you know, any other detection dog. He really would only work in this line of work. And we were looking for a dog at the time and we were able to get him into a foster home with the right, um, the right people. And he's actually since grown out of that foster home, no longer gets along with several of the dogs in that foster home. There was a euthanasia discussion about him several months ago. And luckily, we had just purchased a 40-acre facility, and he now lives in an indoor-outdoor kennel run there. You know, it's not the perfect life, but he gets to work. He gets hiked every day. Um, but he does not get to live in a home. And there, again, there are so many things that had to go right for this dog to have this opportunity because he has bitten a lot of people pretty severely. Um, yeah. And does not, does not give what I would call fair warning before his bites. Um yeah. And he that's just not a reality for so 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 many other dogs out there to end up in his situation. Yeah. I um when I worked at the Kentucky Humane Society, um I had a relationship with a, a retired police detective who trained search and rescue dogs and he would um he had basically anytime we had a dog come in that was clearly high drive, clearly like kind of nutty, um unmanageable as a pet more or less like the average person coming in looking for a pet was not going to want to talk like this um he would have me call him and he would come and test them and, and the test was he would essentially like restrain the dog by the collar so he'd hold their collar and throw a tennis ball and he would make sure to throw it somewhere where the dog couldn't see where it went and if they stopped searching before they found it they were not suitable for that job and so i mean in the almost four years I was there, I can think of maybe probably less, less than five dogs that he, that he chose for that task. Um, so the criteria are insanely high and, and I've had so many clients with drivey, not insane, like, you know, unquenchable drives, but drivey dogs with aggression issues that go, maybe they could do 
search and rescue work. Maybe they could do whatever. When in reality, very few dogs, and you know better than me, but mm-hmm. very few dogs meet that criteria. So it's not. Yeah, our our estimates are that it's about one in a thousand dogs have what yeah. it takes to cut it at the job that we do. Yeah, and I would argue that what we do, so working dogs for conservation, is probably easier for a dog with behavior issues than disaster search and rescue, for sure. live find search and rescue, wilderness yeah. search and rescue. So they're going to be working around teams of people or in airports or whatever. Yeah. 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 We're yeah. trying to find people. You know, you're a human aggressive dog with a lot of drive working to find uh, missing kids. Yeah, that's not going to go well. Um you know, and maybe, yes, they could make it as a human remains detection dog. Um, that would be the only other thing I would say is comparable. But even then, I've I've gone out with, with those teams. Um, I volunteer occasionally with the lifeguard group here in Missoula doing, doing search and rescue. And, uh, I mean, people are walking shoulder to shoulder, you know. Uh, your dog is not generally going to be going out in a total vacuum. Like, they're going to be going out as part of a search party. So, yeah, it's just... We we do working dogs for conservation. We do have some dogs with pretty serious issues, um, but not many. And at this point, we're really trying not to take them because it's too hard on our handlers and on our foster families. Um, you know, it's it's getting to the point where even us, as an or one of the few organizations that does tend to take on some of these dogs, we're we're, we're doing less and less of it because it's just so hard. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's a hindrance to the dog getting their job done, whatever that job is, yeah. Yeah. Um, So our next big, big factor, and this is the the flashy one that always comes to mind first, but what's the potential risk of injury or even death? So when a dog's behavior problem surfaces, does somebody get hurt and how badly do they get hurt? So is the dog injuring or killing other dogs? Are they injuring or killing or trying to kill people, livestock, those sorts of things? All of those things factor in to a prognosis, um, you know, and, and I rely really heavily on the Dunbar bite scale um, to, to standardize how we talk about bites. And for those of you who aren't familiar, it's basically a scale to rank how much damage is done when a dog bites. So a level, uh, what, a Level zero, I think, is just an air snap. And then a level six is um, dismemberment, like the dog has killed and and dissected something. Um, So uh, once you start to get to level three and beyond, you're talking about relatively significant damage. Um, And so to me, um, anything that is consistently severe is not an acceptable risk. And so not an acceptable risk doesn't mean automatic, the dog needs to be euthanized, but it means something needs to happen. Um, This cannot be allowed to happen again, whether we're talking management, whether the dog has to wear a muzzle when it goes outside, whether, you know, we're talking behavior medication or an extensive treatment plan. We, we, I don't feel that it is responsible as a professional or or as a pet owner um, or as a shelter worker to allow a dog out in the community um, where they have the opportunity to injure someone like that or injure someone else's pet in that way. Um, so it's sort of like something's got to give. We've got we've to figure out, um, you know, how, how we can prevent this from happening again. And so that's, again, where we get into 
what's the likelihood and what's the consequence? So is it extremely likely and the consequence is very bad? That's a huge red flag. Um, if it's not super likely and the consequence is not bad, then okay, you know, that's something that's not as urgent or not as severe. So, um, yeah. And I think and size, I, size and breed kind of play into this, which is yeah. unfortunate. You know, I, I would, I, I would love to be able to just live in this, in this totally breed neutral world mm-hmm. where, you know, it always bothered me at the shelter when we would have these chihuahuas with really, really extensive histories of fear-based aggression uh, going back up for adoption. This um, chihuahua has put 30 separate holes in 30 separate people, but they're tiny, tiny holes. And so they just ignored it or whatever. And, and you know, and like, there's a part of me that's like, God, that's so unfair. But on the other hand, like, no, it kind of is fair because like it is, it's a different level of risk versus, you know, um, I think one of the fastest euthanasia decisions I ever made was from a great Dane that grabbed another dog during a dog test bit held shook. Um, we had to citronella spray it to get it to let go, you know, and it was just like, sorry, you know, like that is not, a. it was an adolescent day and it was only getting bigger. Um, you know, that's that's not, that wasn't a hard decision, um, in the shelter context, Given this dog's history, which I'm not going to remember all of, but you know, like that's very, very different from a chihuahua doing the same behavior, which would also be concerning, but chihuahua is not going to kill another dog. The outcome is different. And I think for, you know, for anyone who's feeling that sort of knee jerk, like, oh my gosh, you, you know, like that quickly, like made that judgment call about that dog. Think about how it would feel to be, to, to be out on a walk with your dog and somebody, somebody's great Dane gets loose from their yard and charges towards you and picks up your dog and kills it. Yeah. Or drags them across the street because they're yep. trying to stop it with all their might and it yes. still gets to you. Um, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And so, you know, those are the kinds of things where we have to say, we can't let that happen to someone else. Like maybe this particular dog isn't suffering in any, um, you know, quantitative way, but we cannot allow this dog to inflict that kind of harm on someone else or someone else's dog. Um, and yeah. the and, and risk I mean, of it happening in during a- Oh, go ahead. I was going to say just, I mean, part of it with, uh, particularly with a dog like a Dane, living in Denver, that dog is going to need to get walked. Um and finding someone with the level of intent that that dog displayed, finding someone who would be able to walk that dog safely um, and be able to pass another dog safely. Um, it just wasn't, you know, and again, I mean, we're, I know we're going to kind of get into the difference between sheltering and a pet dog home. Um, but yeah, that was, that was a really, really scary one. And then unfortunately, one of the other things that comes up particularly in Denver um, and again, this is more on the sheltering side, um, but uh, potentially also in homes um, is is breed perception as well. Um, when I worked at Denver Dumb Friends League, and I think while you were there as well, we had a breed ban in Denver. Um, mm-hmm. And so we unfortunately had, we still do. I wasn't sure whether what the status was mm-hmm. with the, the mayor and the city council going back and forth on all that. Oh, yeah. Um, no. Mayor Hancock uh, doesn't want to ever send the breed band, so. <laughs> Boo. But, um, 
it's not the, the most urgent political issue um, of the moment, but boo. Certainly is, um, but it's still but, but yeah, I mean, in the shelter, you know, if we had a Staffordshire par- Terrier or a pit bull come up um, that had a behavior issue that was equivalent to the behavior issue that a border collie had, um, that pit bull would be judged more harshly because we were trying to adopt it out into a place where they they were, I mean, De- Denver Dumb Friends League, we would adopt to pe- pe- pit bulls to people who didn't have a Denver address. So you had to prove that you didn't live where the breed band was. But still, um, you know, because we technically were adopting out dogs within Denver city limits that were not legal to own there, um, we were harder on them. And it sucks. You know, it's, it, but like that is part of the political climate that you live in. Um, that well, I think certain every, breeds of dogs are going to get judged more harshly. Um, and that needs to be a factor, at least on the sheltering side. I don't think I know any uh Pitbull owner. I've, I've worked with many clients who have pit bulls, and I don't think I've ever talked to one that didn't understand. If I take my dog to the dog park and, and he gets into a fight, he's going to be the one blamed regardless of what happens. Yeah. They're extremely aware of the fact that there is a, a bias against the breed. And so, yeah, absolutely. That's something that has to be, unfortunately, taken into consideration. It's one of those things where, like, we can wish it wasn't true all we want. But that doesn't change the reality of the fact that it yeah. is. I would hate to be the one who adopted out the dog that, you know, made Colorado Springs ban pit bulls, too. Exactly. Yeah. Or exactly. Missoula. Or, you know, whatever. Yep. Um, so, uh, less that we have on our list, certainly not the last factor, but the last that we have on our list, uh, the dog's quality of life or, or suffering or the people who are involved in the dog's life. What is the quality of life like? Um, one case that springs to mind um, recently, uh, it was pre-pandemic, so <laughs> pre-COVID, I worked with a wonderful lady who had um, taken on her late um, son-in-law's dog who um, had just a host of behavioral and health issues. And my client lived in a high-rise condo, and this dog I couldn't even leave the apartment without just being a having a a meltdown essentially at every person dog movement um just extremely high anxiety extremely high stress level extremely sensitive um reactivity low threshold and both the dog and the human were really suffering really really suffering um and so you know we were able to do a few things that helped improve their quality of life, but it was, they, they were so saturated in this environment that triggered the dog over and over and over again, um, that they were just constantly on it. I mean, my client literally said like, I'm getting ulcers. I can't sleep. I'm so stressed. Yes. And, you know, interestingly, ultimately the dog ended up being euthanized for a health condition. One of her health conditions took a turn for the worse. And the client, I think kind of factored in, um, the behavior issues when she ultimately made the decision to let the, the dog go, but they were suffering. My heart went out to them. Like I'm, I feel emotional talking about it because I mean, every, she would cry every session, you know, just because the stress of the situation and she wanted to be right by this dog. And, um, but she, she just couldn't. And she, and she just worried about it 24 seven. 
And I don't feel that's a humane way for either of them to have to live. Um, you know, so I think we have to take that in consideration. Like, are, are, are all parties involved? Do they have the potential to be able to get away from the emotional stress that is, they're currently experiencing? Is there the potential for that? Or is this long haul suffering? Yeah. Yeah. And it's hard to know. I mean, I just decided that we are going to do a case study on the foster dog that I had at the beginning of this pandemic. So we know one of our upcoming episodes now. Um, but she was one where, I mean, the quality of life issues with her were, were really, really concerning to me. She, um, she came from a shelter somewhere down South. I don't remember where, or no, 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 Northern Montana. She transferred in to Missoula. Anyway, she transferred in. She had no history. Um, couldn't touch her. Um, didn't come out of her crate for the first week or so of being in my apartment defecated. If you put her on leash, cause she was so scared, um, would alligator roll, um, blah, blah, blah. Um, about three weeks into me having her, she was targeting my hands well, but I still hadn't pet her yet. Um, and at that point she started exhibiting separation anxiety behaviors. Um, so barking and destruction and defecating when left alone. But again, you couldn't touch her, you couldn't leash her, you couldn't take her anywhere. Um, she was on two different drugs. Um, I don't remember which and what dosages at this point. Um, but I mean, oh my God. And I also took this dog on <laughs> during the start of the pandemic. So I had her like basically the month of April. Um, and I, I, I can't imagine having been an adopter for her at that point. Um, she actually, I just got an amazing update video of her. Um, she's like almost a normal still fearful dog, but she ended up in a home with a really nice social dog. And I mean, I had her for six weeks or so, and then she was in the shelter for another couple of weeks and, um, has ended up in just an amazing home, but she is a dog that, I mean, there were multiple times during my time fostering her where I was just like, this quality of life is not acceptable for me. It's not acceptable for her. I don't know if she's an adoption candidate. The shelter also knew that and told me that when I first agreed to foster her, they were like, don't get too attached. We don't know. Mm. Um, but and I, you know, if I she hadn't that. shown that improvement, you know, cause she did, you know, within about three months of originally arriving at the shelter, she was, she had shown a huge improvement. Um, and even in those six weeks with me, she showed a lot of improvement. If she hadn't gotten past where she was, even with me, when she left my home, um, I don't think it would have been acceptable to keep her um, yeah. alive. Well, I was going to say, I think that's something that, you know, often falls by the wayside is the consideration about the human end of the oh equation. Oh my God, it's so stressful. Right. Oh my it gosh. Was I, like, awful. And honestly, um, some of the stuff that my clients have to endure, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to, to tolerate it um, or to, or to deal with it um, from an emotional standpoint. Um, and I think that, you know, we all go into this field because we love dogs and we want to help dogs, but it's easy to forget that, you know, at the end of the day, we're responsible for the humans that are in these dogs' lives um, and making sure that we're helping them too. And and when you have this tunnel vision of, no, we're just going to save dogs' lives unequivocally, that's the only thing that matters is keeping a dog alive. I think that's just one of the first things that comes up short is that well, what what are what's happening to the people who have to deal with 
these dogs with these severe issues? What is their life going to be like? Um, and it's not fair to ask the average pet owner to take on a 10-week-old puppy that bites them in the head or a dog that they can't leave their apartment with ever or, you know, or a dog that... Alone in the apartment. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. 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 Right? yeah it's it's not yeah. realistic. It's not realistic. It's not fair. Um, and, you know, especially for me when I think, like, I wouldn't want to take on a dog like that. I wouldn't... I don't know how long I would last, you know, just from a bandwidth standpoint of being able to... to manage that. And so if I wouldn't do it and I'm a professional behavior consultant, like changing behavior is my job. <laughs> How can I ask a client, a lay person to take that on? Um, yeah, absolutely. Because we want our dogs to bring us joy and, and uh, you know, that's not our only reason for having dogs, but it's one of the reasons we seek them out. And so I think to ask a client to take on a dog that is only stressful and only a, a chore is just a big ask, a big ask. Yeah. 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 And I, one of the things I found surprising with Madge, and then I, I remember struggling with this some at the shelter as well, was um, the amount of guilt that I would feel when I got frustrated with these dogs. Um, and that was like this really awful emotional experience of being so despairing of what was going on with these dogs and then being frustrated and responding with a feeling of anger, um, you know, not necessarily like lashing out at the dog, but just feeling angry and then feeling guilty and then feeling, you know, like it was just this awful spiral. Um, Yes. And uh, it's intense. And, And yeah, and neither myself nor Madge was happy. Um, with the situation and I'm absolutely thrilled to report that it turned out okay for her, but I don't, I don't think had we decided um, when she left my home after six weeks, I don't think despite it having turned out well, I think if the shelter had decided to, to euthanize her at that point, that would not have been the wrong choice. Yeah. Um, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. I, 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 like obviously hindsight is twenty twenty, and we know now that it worked out well, but I don't, Given the information we had at that time, I think it would have been entirely reasonable to choose to euthanize her at that point. Um, which, yeah. Well, and you know, one thing you said about the guilt spiral is I've heard that reflected um, with my clients so often is they do hit that wall of just frustration and I'm done. Or even when they start to think like, is euthanasia an option? And then they feel guilty. And then it's just this horrible mess of these really... Um, difficult emotions to grapple with. And again, you know, that's a lot to put on a pet owner. That's a lot to say like, Hey, I want you to take all of this on, Um, you know? So we, we definitely need to be considering the the human casualties in all of this and what we're asking people to do uh, for sure. Yeah. And kind of, I, I think, Trish McMillan talks about this in an article she wrote for the IABC journal about kind of how that ultimately is going to affect the perception of particularly shelter dogs, um, going forward into that community. Um, yes, you might be able to find a home where that dog is successful, but after watching their friend, cousin, neighbor, um, go through that, how many other people are going to choose to steer clear of adopting a shelter dog because of watching how difficult that experience is? Will that family ever be willing to adopt a shelter dog again? Um, you might be saving that one marginal dog 
Um, but the, the hurt that that dog causes, even if it works out quote unquote, okay for that individual dog, um, might be contributing to other dogs later, not getting adopted. That could have been easier placements. Yeah. And we're going to talk a lot more about this in part two. Yep. So we've gone on too long. This topic deserves more time and, and it deserves not to be rushed through. So we're going to actually wrap this up here. We're going to talk next time about how these decisions will look, would look different uh, in the shelter environment versus in a home, which we've touched on, but we'll dig into that a little bit more. And then we're also going to discuss um, how we talk to clients about behavioral euthanasia, um, how we respond to clients who ask about it, how we, um, you know, treat the topic since it's a very sensitive one. Um, so we want to be thoughtful about how we treat it. So we're going to go into all of that in part two of this behavioral euthanasia episode. So thanks for sticking around with us so far. More, much more to come. Yeah. <laughs> And we'll have, well, we've got something fun planned for you guys in an upcoming episode. So by the time we're done with euthanasia, we're going to have a really fun one. And then, and then we'll come back and talk about Madge, which is um, a feel-good story. So, uh, yeah. yeah. Stick with us for the next couple of episodes, guys. Hang in there. Hang in there. Um, all right. Well, we want to thank you all so much for joining us today for this extremely weighty but really important topic. Uh, and we'd like to hear from you. Do you have experience with behavioral euthanasia, um, either as a professional or as a guardian? What are your thoughts and feelings about it? Um, we invite any respectful discussion on the topic, but we want everyone to keep in mind that we're all going to give each other the benefit of the doubt that we're operating in the best interest of the animals and the people that we serve. So reach out to us at hello at canineconvos.com or leave a comment wherever you listen. I'm Ursa Acre. I'm the co-owner of Canis Major Dog Training in Denver, Colorado, and you can find me, my business partner, and our training team online at canismajortraining.com. And I'm Kayla Fratt. You guys can find me at journeydogtraining.com or at Collie Without Borders on Instagram. Um, the Instagram is much more kind of fun hiking content, and Journey Dog Training is much more. If you actually want to hire me or read my thoughts about. I don't know, different types of dog food or whatever. No, I write more, more serious stuff than dog food usually, but, uh, um, and I just launched a, um, a new puppy course, um, with canine of mine that I'm super duper excited about. Um, as, and that is an augment to our, um, 30 things to teach a dog in 30 days course. So we've got a puppy course and then a course for like new dog or just kind of needing to revamp your staff, your, your other, your adult dogs training. Um, so check out both of those. Um, you can find them under classes on journeydogtraining.com. They're both just kind of like online courses you can take whenever. So awesome. That's it. Before we go, we want to make sure that you subscribe to Canine Conversations wherever you find your podcast. You can find episode notes and bonus materials at canineconvos.com. You can also contact us at hello at canineconvos.com. That's the word canine all spelled out and convos as in short for conversations. Although our conversations are rarely ever short. <laughs> we, we have to keep the URL because we talk too long. <laughs> <laughs> right? You gotta you gotta trim trim where you can. <laughs> yeah, that's our new tagline. <laughs> all right guys. Um, thanks for sticking around. We'll talk to you later. Bye.